This episode of Undercommon Taste is sponsored by... Of Mice and Men and Monsters is a podcast which combines the art and beauty of classic literature with the fun of Dungeons and Dragons roleplay. These episodes are led by me, Kate, Dungeon Master meets High School English Teacher. We take on quests in these fascinating worlds, meeting and adventuring with the greatest literary characters of all time. It's a much more exciting way to experience literature than writing an essay. Essays don't have swords which burst into flame. A new episode of Of Mice and Men and Monsters is released every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. You know, I wanted to be a Valkyrie when I was younger, until I found out you had to all be women. Not, not that there's nothing wrong with women, of course. I like women. Sometimes too much. Not in a creepy way. Just kind of one of those respectful appreciation. I think it's great. Like a force of all women fighters. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are returning to go through the three layers of Easgard. This episode is going to be very front-heavy in that the first 90% of it is going to be the first layer of Isgard because that's where they decided to put everything. Yeah, they kind of just threw everything in and just kind of slapped a bunch in the rest. And as you will find out, we really had to rake Ian over the coals to do the research for this one. Oh, it was so <laughs> bad. It was so bad. Oh, I am in so much pain. It, it was so terrible. So your degree, I know you had your degree in medieval medieval studies, medieval history, correct? Yes. Did you actually specifically focus on German and Norse specifically? Or I no? did not. I do have just a general history degree, primarily because when I transferred to University of Virginia, the semester I started there was the first semester of their actual proper medieval studies program. So I didn't know that it existed when I transferred. Otherwise, I would have gotten into the medieval studies program instead of just the general history program. By the time I found out about it, I would have required too many additional courses to switch majors. Because whenever you're a transfer student there, they give you X number of semesters to finish. Right. And so it would have taken me over my number of semesters that I was allowed to be there to finish. Okay. So yes, I focused on medieval European history. There is a lot of German stuff, a lot of English stuff, a bit of Italian stuff, tiny bit of Spanish stuff, not a whole lot. A lot of my classes were oriented more towards a religious aspect of medieval history, largely because the church had such a huge presence in medieval Europe. This is also very true. Yeah, so one of the classes that I took was Christianity the First Thousand Years, which was a whole lot of fun. Lots of martyrs. It's hard to remember all of the martyrs. Yeah, there, there was quite a few of those. But one of the classes that I took in my last semester was Protestant Reformations. So that was the other end, you know, coming out of the Renaissance and into early modern Europe. So anyway, lots and lots of Norse lore in this. And like I said, there's going to be a lot of rabbit trails. So buckle up, buckaroos. This is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to keep all of my Norse mythology tangents to two minutes or less. 
I've got a stopwatch. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me on that. Okay, so let's go ahead and just dive right in. So the first layer of Easeguard is terribly creative in its name. The first layer is called Easeguard. Right off the start, I have a problem with this. <laughs> you go through, again, jumping straight into Norse mythology. Do I need to start the stopwatch? <laughs> yeah, go ahead and start. I can do this one in two minutes. Okay. But going back to the Norse creation myths, everything was kind of born from the chaos. And then you had Niflheim and Mudheim. I can never say these names correctly. Mudhelm, Mudheim, Mudheim? Yeah, something like that. Something I don't, like that. I don't have it in front of me and I don't have them all memorized. So, But these two realms kind of smooshed together. And so what we have is realm two and three in the D&D pantheon really should be one and two because Gisgard and what we know as kind of our material plane and everything else came from those two kind of smooshing together a bit and interacting. So Yisgard really should be in the middle of the sandwich and not on the top. So soapbox moment over. See, and under two it, minutes, I'm good. If I remember correctly, Yisgard is immediately on top of Midgard, correct? Uh, yes. Because Midgard is our world. Correct. And they made Midgard with a fence to protect us from all the giants. We'll get into giant lore later on. I'll need another two minutes for that. <laughs> all I right. relinquish the rest of my time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So yes, Isgard in D&D cosmology is the topmost layer. It is the one that is most commonly visited by outsiders because, as I mentioned, this is where everything is. This is the layer where you have the large earthbergs floating around with the rivers of earth that they float in through the sky. And so, yes, this is definitely the most common place to go. And as I was reading through the other layers, what we were calling a planar effect of you get revived at dawn every day if you die here seems to only affect this first layer. It seems to be a layer effect as opposed oh. to a planar effect. Interesting. Because whenever you get into it a little bit further, they're talking about when you get down to the second layer and all of the giants down there, they're talking about how the giant king who sits on the skull throne of Emir is a position that is held for short periods of time and is subject to frequent, violent, deadly overthrow. Meaning that the previous giant has to die, and there's no mention of them coming back and challenging again. And there are elements in the third layer, whenever we get into Svartalfheim, where there's an entire city where the Svartalves go to die. And where the other Svartelves, they visit it so that they can speak with the spirits of their dead ancestors. So that means that they have to actually die. And there's another aspect for the restless dead in this city, which is something that we'll get to when we get to the third layer in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but that means that there has to be a finality to the death there. So what you're telling me is that TSR stepped all over their own lore and didn't expect the players to read the fine print. Maybe? <laughs> I don't know, because this seems to be an Asgardian effect, primarily. Because the only two realms on this first layer of Isgard that have this effect specifically laid out and mentioned are Asgard, 
which is where the Aesir live, and Vanaheim, which is where the Vanir live, which are the two families of the Norse pantheon. So these are the two realms where the Norse gods are, primarily, and these are the two realms that are specifically mentioned to have people resurrected at dawn every day. So you're saying the rule set was a little less than clear instead of completely flubbed? I think they grossly generalized in the base lore whenever they were laying everything out. And then whenever they got into the specifics, they narrowed it down. And that happens. And again, where you're dealing with realms and mythos from so many different cultures and things. Yeah, you kind of have to have that because so much comes baked in, you could say, when you're transporting a mythos into any kind of fantasy setting. So without gutting some severe aspects, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So if you're at home and you're homebrewing this, yeah, you can use this rule for just the upper layer as it seems they intended, perhaps. If you want to roll it for your players or certain NPCs or important NPCs in the lower levels, that's fine too. And you can still play that technically rules as written that gives the DM a bit of wiggle room. And another thing that suggests that it is connected to the Norse gods and not to the layer is that when we get to the gates of the moon, the creatures that live there that are uh, subjects of Selun, if they die, they die. They don't resurrect because they're in this realm that is separate from the Norse gods. So that leads me to believe that this is a deific power, an aura around these gods, as opposed to say, even a layer effect. Yeah, I can see that. And again, that's just a note for our DM. As they try to build a scenario or a campaign in this realm, even the rules as written can be murky. Yeah, I am all for keeping this to the Norse gods. If you retcon it that way, that does clear up a lot of conflict where things kind of clash. So yeah, that is very feasible. Okay, we've had a couple of false starts. Let's actually get the ball rolling here. So the first and most prominent area within Isgard is the realm Asgard. So yes, you have Asgard and Isgard and Isgard. It's very confusing. Is that like New York City in New York? <laughs> it's like the capital of Djibouti is Djibouti. <laughs> what about my booty? Again, we've discussed this. We're better off as friends again. It's yes. okay. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, so Asgard is the home of the Aesir, which are the family of... Odin. So you've got Odin, you've got Thor, you've got Heimdall, you've got Frigga. These are all the gods that you're going to have in the Aesir. If you go by old Norse lore, technically Loki is in there as well. Marvel kind of skewed Loki a bit and made him, you know, more the brother of Thor. But by traditional lore, he's actually the brother of Odin, which is kind of interesting. So funny that you mentioned Loki, because Loki as a deity is as likely to save the Aesir from ruin as he is to get himself into trouble with them. So he spends as much time in his little bolt hole realm in Pandemonium in Winter's Hall as he does here in Asgard. Ten steps so he, everyone he, off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does do things that make everyone very upset. And again, coming back from Marvel and a lot of different things, where you see Loki with the horns and art, he very easily became that kind of sinister related to the devil in Norse mythology, but he's really not. Loki is the embodiment of chaotic neutral. Loki yes. is chaotic neutral. There is little to no evil in him. He does things for the lulls and he'll own his mistakes. He'll step up. He'll try to fix his mistakes. So you got to respect the dude for that. But he's not sinister. He's just bored. <laughs> 
So many of the Aesir like to roam Asgard in disguise, or on occasion they'll wander off into Jotunheim to fight giants, because that's, that's what, what you, you do. do. So the Vanir gods of Frey and Freya, their twin brother and sister, also live here as part of a trade that ensures peace between the Aesir and the Vanir. That trade is more in proper Norse mythology than it is here. In proper Norse mythology, two minutes, the Aesir and the Vanir didn't get along. They had a big fight. They finally decided to make a truce. The Vanir sent Frey and Freya to the Aesir. The Aesir sent Mimir and Hönir to the Vanir. And then the Vanir thought that they got a raw deal because... They thought that Honir was the wise one when it was actually Mimir who was whispering the wise things into Honir's ear. And so whenever he was unable to give them a good answer one too many times, they lopped off Mimir's head and sent it back to them. And Odin got really maudlin about it and had his head preserved and set on a plate in a way that he could still talk so that he could go and consult Mimir for wisdom when he needed to. It's kind of weird, but that's what happened. End. (laughs) I hadn't heard that story before. That one is a bit weird. A modern pop culture reference for this is if you look at like the first couple seasons of Game of Thrones, where they have Theon Greyjoy being held by House Stark because there was the revolt in the Iron Islands. And so they took the son kind of as a hostage that they raised as their own. That way, hey, if you're out of line, I'll just kill your heir. Oops. And so this actually did happen off and on through large royal families throughout European history. So again, that kind of gives you that pop culture touchstone if you're having a hard time. Like, why would they send their kids to their enemies? Yeah, it was a mutual guarantee of good behavior. Yeah. So anyway, that out of the way. Like I said, rabbit trails the whole way down. It's going to be great. (laughs) All the way down. We're about to go on another one real quick. Um, (laughs) So Asgard itself is a very cold realm because it is based off of Scandinavia. And its seasons swing to extremes. But the realm itself is surrounded by this stone wall that is 40 feet thick and 80 feet high. And this is where the story of Slipnir comes in. Odin's eight-legged rainbow horse. This is also among my favorite myths. <laughs> okay, so this guy shows up and says, hey, you're having lots of problems with these giants, right? I can build you a wall that'll keep the giants out. And it will only take me a week to do it. And the Aesir were all like, nobody can build a wall that big that fast. So he says, I'll make a deal with you. If I'm able to do it, I get to marry Freya. And they said, okay. And Freya was like, what? So he starts building this wall and he is building it really, really fast. And it's looking like he's getting ready to be successful in this endeavor of building this entire wall in seven days. So Freya goes up to one of the other gods and says, hey, I'm getting real concerned because you made this deal. And if he is successful, I have to marry him and I don't want to. So Fix it. And so they go out and they realize that the reason why he's able to build this wall so fast is because of his big fancy horse that is lifting all of these stones to put them into place. And so Loki turns himself into a female horse and lures the Mason's horse away for the last day. And because of that, he isn't able to finish the wall. And he gets very upset and reveals himself as being a giant and they smite him thoroughly. Fast forward about a couple of weeks and Loki comes back 
with this baby eight-legged rainbow horse that he is the mother of. And he's like, I don't want this here. You can have it. And so that's how Odin got his eight-legged rainbow horse. Yeah. So actually touching back on this. So this whole deal was actually Loki's idea. The guy came up and initially he said it would take him like a year or a month, whatever, to build it. And Loki's like, well, let's shorten his time way down to a season or a week or whatever. And the whole concept was is they figured they didn't give this guy enough time to finish the wall. And that God's completely intended to screw the guy over on this deal anyway, have him build most of the wall, and then they could see how he's doing it and just finish the work. And like Ian was saying, the guy was actually coming through and Freya's like, Loki, this is on you. And Odin basically comes up and tells Loki that I will kill you if this guy's finished and it'll be slow and terrible. So again, this is one of those things where Loki had this great idea and then kind of went sideways and he had to fix it. So, <laughs> All right. So that's the story of Slepnir. Weird spider horse. Yeah, weird eight-legged rainbow horse. Next up is the Eving River. It flows on the boundary of Asgard. It forms the barrier between the realm of Asgard and the realm of Jotunheim. It is a magically warm river that never freezes and cannot be frozen even by magic. So the frost giants can't freeze it and walk across it into Asgard is, I guess, the thought behind that. I would see this, and seeing as how many times the Germanic tribes fought ancient Rome, and Rome just like out of nowhere constructed and plopped a bridge down, because that was one thing the Romans were really freaking good at, I could totally see this working their way into, you know what, there's this river, it's warm, and our enemies can't cross it. I could totally see that working into like the collective subconscious of all those people, because like I said, that was something Rome was really freaking good at. Yes, it was. And also just outside of the walls of Asgard proper, let's see if I can get this right on the first try, Lake Armsvartnir. Okay, you're doing what? Yes. You need some air fresheners? Indeed, (laughs) indeed. So there's an island in the middle of this lake called Lingvil Island. And this is the island where the wolf Fenris is chained up. Child number two of Loki, by the way. Yes. Fenris, the wolf that is going to eat the moon during Ragnarok. And Odin. Thor. Wait, no. No. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he eats Odin. Odin. Yeah. Yeah, it's Jormungandr that kills Thor. Yes. Thor kills Jormungandr by driving his hammer up through the roof of his mouth into his skull But in doing so, Jormungandr's fang pierces Thor's arm and Thor dies from the poison. That's how that works. Okay. Very much like Harry Potter and the Basilisk. And also, Fenris is the reason why Tyr only has one hand. Because Fenris ate the other one. He was hungry. (laughs) I was hungry for hands. Fenris never learned the lesson, don't bite the hand that feeds you. The hand was what was feeding him. Yes. Literally. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, yay, Again, so many um, rabbit trails on this one. <laughs> well, this plane is more chaotic than the Beastlands, so we're just having fun. We're just having we just fun. have an excuse, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So because Fenris literally eats anything it can get its jaws on, the island is nothing but dirt, dung, and the smell of wolf musk. You can say the feng shui is a little off here. A little bit. <laughs> it's a wee bit funky. so from the walls of asgard to where the bifrost comes in is this stretch called the plain of ida heimdall's great hall is called himenborg which moves around as he moves bifrost and we'll get to that in a little bit so that's grassy area a over here grassy (laughs) area b on the other side is the plain of vigrid 
And that's the field where all of the petitioners get out and have great big melees every single day and just hack each other to pieces. And then they wake up the next morning and eat breakfast and go and do it again. But this is also the location where Ragnarok is going to be fought. Right. So this is kind of just like the giant practice field getting ready for the day. It's dress rehearsals, really. Yes, it is an eternity of dress rehearsals until Ragnarok actually begins. Another area is called the Well of Erd. The headwaters for the Well of Erd are here in Asgard, near where one of the roots of Yggdrasil goes into the ground. The well itself is in the Grove of the Norns, which is actually in the Outlands and not in Isgard. So it's one of those ways that you can get into and out of Isgard if you're really desperate, because you'd have to swim the whole way. Well, if you have like one of those little rafties, you like do the inner tube. Oh my God, an inner tubing trip on Oceanus. Whee! <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Anyway. Random aside, that needs to happen. Yeah, sure. And near these headwaters is also the location of Rowan's Hall, which is the headquarters of the fated faction that we talked about last week. Right. And these guys are kind of the don't ask for help. You got to pull your. These are the bootstrappy folk. Yes. This is the might makes right. If you can take it and you can hold it, you can keep it. That's their whole mantra. So the Aesir here in Eastgard are rarely in their great halls. Their great halls are typically used as gathering places for civic purposes like weddings, big celebrations, big feasts, all of those sorts of things. But they are in this realm in place of towns. There aren't actually towns here. You just have people that congregate around these great halls. And each of the Aesir has their own great hall. I'm not going to go into all of them because there's like 13 of them. But some of the notable ones, you have Breidablik, which translates to Broad Splendor, which is the home of the god of beauty, Balder. He has a gate somewhere. He does have a gate somewhere. It's... uh. Sword Coast. Yeah, but it is notable as being one of the most beautiful locations in the multiverse because Balder being the god of beauty. Dude has a reputation to maintain. He does have a reputation to maintain. And his hall is an example of perfect architecture. As in everything is perfectly aligned, perfectly in place, perfectly sized, perfectly spaced, perfectly colored, all of that. Okay, I kind of want to see that place. I kind of have a thing for architecture, so yeah. There is nary a blemish on Baldur's Great Hall. So many jokes. <laughs> yes, I know, right? <laughs> and then you have the three great halls of Odin. The first one is Gladsheim. Gladsheim is the great hall that is used as the common hall of the Aesir. This is where the gods themselves go whenever they just want to hang out with one another. Petitioners avoid Gladsheim like the plague because they're afraid of becoming collateral damage in a family dispute. Now, again, that is one of the things, if you recall, last week as we talk about the general atmosphere of this realm and particularly of Ysgard itself, there is a lot of just random combat throughout the thing. Everybody's challenging everybody, if nothing else, for one-upsmanship or grudges or whatever it is. So, yeah, getting caught in one of these things would be a high probability. The gods aren't sitting here in court like you think of, like, the Greek gods sitting in their councils or anything like that. They are just as easy to throw some sort of insult or something towards each other and just hammer it out on the ground because... Tomorrow's a new day. Well, I mean, the gods aren't going to die. They're not going to kill each other. 
I mean, in the case of proper historical Norse mythology, you know, the example of Mimir, he got his head chopped off and he still ain't dead. He's still talking trash. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the petitioners are not so lucky. If Thor and Loki end up having an argument and Thor starts slinging around lightning bolts, a lot of petitioners are going to get real toasty real quick. Yeah, and again, as much weight as Loki himself can throw around, if it comes to the point where Loki's like, you know what, I better take a cooldown on a different realm for a few weeks, kind of gives you an idea. Kind of gives you a perspective, yeah. Yeah, because he kind of pisses everybody off all the time. He's that asshole that everybody loves to hate. Yeah, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. That's right. So the second of Odin's great halls is Valaskelf. This is the great hall where Hlidskjalf, his all-seeing throne is located. This is where Odin has his throne, where he can sit down and he can see all things past, all things present, all things future. That's kind of a cool chair to have. Yeah, and it is also a very heavily defended chair. You are not going to get to go sit on that chair. Oh, I mean, what if he gets up for a second? Even when he's not home, you're not going to go sit on that chair. Not unless you're wanting to fight your way through a couple thousand Einherjar and a couple hundred Valkyries <laughs> and a couple thousand more just regular petitioners. But still an awesome chair. And then the third, probably the most famous of Odin's halls, is Valhalla. The Hall of the Slain where the Einherjar reside. This is for all of the Einherjar that aren't assigned to to the entourage of specific Aesir. Because there are groups of Einherjar that are assigned to specific Aesir. This is like the off-duty bar. Kinda, yeah. So the Valkyrie Regenleaf is the leader of the host in Odin's absence. And she has absolute authority over everybody in the hall. But with the Einherjar, they fight amongst themselves just the same as every other petitioner and you have a few that they get a head of steam going and they get some renown and people start to learn the names and then they have an off day and they're forgotten again. But there's a couple of them that are successful enough that they basically maintain a reputation amongst the Einherjar and the de facto leader of the Einherjar, the one that has been at the top of the game for the longest, is a guy named Harold the Left-Handed. And now James and I are both in the SCA and we have both done heavy armored fighting. And I get it. There is nothing worse than fighting a left-handed fighter. Just as a quick breakdown, if you've not done heavy combat or anything like that, generally in the SCA, a lot of people do what we call sword and board. They have a sword or a shield or anything like that. So, you know, if you're right-handed, you have sword, right hand, shield, left hand. And as you face your opponent, your natural swing with your right hand, your power swing with your right hand is going to connect with your opponent's shield. But if you're left-handed, your power swing with your left hand is going to go into the largely unprotected side of your opponent's sword hand. That said, your opponent does have the same advantage. But if you're left-handed, you're used to fighting that way where a right-handed combatant is not. Yes, which is why left-handed fighters are the devil. The devil. And they do everything backwards. And a lot of the really good ones are really good at what's called a rap shot, where they go past you and then they swing their sword around and flick it back and they smack you in the butt and it really hurts. And you don't sit for about a week. (laughs) Because a lot of people don't wear armor on their butt because it's awkward place to armor. It is an awkward like, oh, who's going to slap me in the ass? Everybody. That guy. (laughs) Anyway, that aside, the last of the halls that I really wanted to talk about is 
Himmenborg. Himmenborg is the Hall of Heimdall. That's not the big floating airship, right? No, that's the Hindenburg. (laughs) Himmenborg is the Great Hall of Heimdall, who is the guardian of Bifrost. Bifrost, also called the Trembling Road, or more commonly known as the Rainbow Bridge. Bifrost is the way by which Asgard is connected to the material plane. And Heimdall can move it from place to place within Asgard on his end, and he can place it on any material plane world where the Norse gods are worshipped. So he can place it anywhere in the multiverse where the Norse gods have a presence. He can only place it on one world at a time, but he can put it wherever he wants. Now, one thing that I never fully understood, and maybe you, since you have a bit more immersion and understanding with North mythology and myth, how did the pets start crossing the road? How did that become a pop culture thing? Like, Because everybody knows like when your pet dies, oh, we'll see you over the Rainbow Bridge, which I get and is a nice, is it a different Rainbow Bridge they're mentioning? Or is it actual the Bifrost and this is a Norse thing? Like I never understood how that came about. I think that is a more modern thing, a fairly recent thing, because I don't remember ever hearing that up until about 10 years ago, maybe. And I think that it might just be simply an appropriation of an existing mythological transition between the world as we know it, the material plane, and some afterlife, some other place. And just let this be a note to people. White people will also appropriate other white people stuff. We steal everything. (laughs) I mean, just look at the English language. The English language is just a group of white guys stealing words from other people. I was going to bring up the British Museum, but the English language works too. Oh, the British Museum, (laughs) yes. The only reason why the pyramids are not in the British Museum is because they were too big to pick up and carry. Damn straight. Anyway, let's end that rant for a moment. There will be others. So, Himmenborg moves with Bifrost. So it is always at the base of Bifrost, wherever Bifrost happens to be touching Asgard. Whenever Heimdall happens to be in his hall, which is not very often because he's usually too busy watching Bifrost to actually pay attention to his great hall, he has the Gjallarhorn, which is the horn that he will blow to begin Ragnarok, hanging over the door of his great hall. This is his the doctor is in sign. Which, I mean, as far as emblem goes, that's a pretty cool one to have. Here, my calling card is the trumpet that will end the world. Oh my god, a ska band with Himdal, Gabriel, and we'd have to find some other like celestial trumpeters. That'd be amazing. There's got to be a Sumerian god, and there's got to be a Hindu god that play horns of some sort. And Pan. Pan has to be in there too. So it's going to be more like Jethro Tull. Okay, I'm still okay with this. <laughs> but, okay, I will look this up tonight. This is happening. It'll be great. It'll be great. So, because Heimdall's Hall is at the base of Bifrost, it is the one Aesir Great Hall that exists outside of the walls of Asgard. As a result, it has its own wall, manned by Einherjar petitioners and criminals from within Asgard who have decided to serve their time in the militia instead of getting exiled from Asgard. So that's kind of their whole shtick. That's probably where George R.R. Martin got his whole Night's Watch thing from, I would imagine. So their duty is to defend Asgard from the giants and other monsters that come across the Bifrost. So yes, that's probably a portion of where Martin got his inspiration. I know that the wall is also 
based heavily upon Hadrian's Wall, which is the wall that the Romans built to keep the Celts out of Roman-occupied Britain. Well, it was so the Scots could fight their fiercest enemy, the Scots. They weren't even properly Scots then. They were still Celts. Yeah, Celts and Picts. Were they Picts yet? I think the Picts were up there. The Picts were in Britain when the Romans came, I think. Again, that's a completely different rabbit trail, so we'll just drop that one and we'll move along. So the Himmenborg militia is commanded by a guy named Heinrich Ivarsson. And as part of his station, he can, when needed, summon Valkyries to assist in defending the walls. Snazzy. But they rarely do that because Himmenborg prides itself on independence. Because it's out beyond the walls. And it's got that strong independent streak that all of Isgard has. So a couple of the other little details about Bifrost before we move on away from the Aesir for a minute. The Bifrost can only be climbed by a true believer in the Norse powers. So someone who is not a worshiper of a Norse deity or members of the Norse pantheon simply cannot walk across the Bifrost in terms of mortals. Yeah, I was going to say, because there is a bit in mythology that the army of Muthpilheim, Muthpil- I can never say that right, Bifrost will crumble under their feet, apparently. So that's kind well, of that, creepy and weird. That's how they get to Ragnarok. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. And that's why Heimdall has the horn. And they burn the bridge behind them? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that, that many giants on the bridge at once. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, it buckles under the weight is basically how I understand it. But... While on the bridge, all magic ceases to function. This includes spells. This includes latent creature abilities. This includes enchantments on items. None of that works. I like it. But the plus side is that it only takes 1d6 hours for you to get from Asgard to the other end of Bifrost or vice versa. So it's a short walk, relatively speaking. I mean, you're crossing the plains in 1d6 hours. As long as you don't run into pirates. Ooh, highwaymen on the Bifrost. I wonder if Hemdal would allow that. Probably not. He is a lawful good god. They wait until they get off of the Bifrost because there are denizens of Asgard that mill around the end of the Bifrost waiting for people to come across and they tag them as marks as saying they're kind of clueless. They don't know where they are and they take them for everything they got. I could see that, but I also could see, like I said, if there were pirates or like highwaymen on the Bifrost, where all of your magical stuff doesn't work, and they were purely martial. I would think that if that were to happen, Heimdall would just turn off the Bifrost. Yeah, I could see that happening too. He'd be like, yeah. no, we're not doing this. We're not doing we're this. Doing this Click, <laughs> enjoy your flight. Yes. <laughs> And the last little detail of the Bifrost is that undead and other creatures that are harmed by sunlight are instantly slain if they try to cross the Bifrost. Again, I'm not saying George R.R. Martin's a hack, but, you know, hey, it's been done before. Okay, finally we're done with Asgard. Let's hop across the river to Jotunheim, which is the land of the giants, is literally giant home. It is a land where the large hunt the small... And the abrasive weather and arrogant denizens make it one of the least hospitable realms in the Upper Plains. We say one of because we haven't gotten down to Muspelheim yet. So Jotunheim is ruled by Surtur, who is the giant god of fire. I got those backwards last week. Surtur is the god of fire and Thrym is the giant god of frost. Now, I will say when you come to Jotunheim... All petitioners are granted one little hat that has these little kind of mouse ears that kind of look like the Disney ears. 
and the giants may or may not be wearing giant bunny ears like little bunny foo-foo. Little bunny foo-foo running through the forest, scooping up the field mice and gnawing off their heads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is not how the song goes, but that is how I sing the song. Okay. That works. <laughs> um, so Surtur, being the god of fire, he rules from his seat in Mirok. Uh, Mirok is the ancient throne hall of the giants. It is carved out of the inside of this volcano. And it starts at the top and it goes all the way down to the magma pool, which is the fire at the base of this earthberg. Within this hall is the skull throne of Emir. The skull throne of Emir is the seat of all giant authority and no king crowned anywhere else is recognized within Isgard as a king. Now, kicking back to Norse myth, the entire physical realm that we know of was made from various points of Ymir's body. So again, coming back, the fact that the giants live in the head is actually a fairly big win for them because again, so much sprang from the body of Ymir after he was killed. Now, Thrym, the god of frost, roams this realm with his band of Jarls and he occasionally stops in at Utgard. Utgard is the major city and fortress of Jotunheim's giants. So this is the primary settlement within Jotunheim. And it's covered by illusions. It's heavily defended. So there's going to be a ton of giants on garrison here. The ruler of the city is the giant king Utgard Loki. I'm not entirely sure if this is actually Loki in disguise or whether he has taken the name Loki as some sort of honorific. I'm actually leaning towards the latter because he is a mountain giant who supposedly wrestled with the Aesir and won through use of magic. Honestly, I could see that one going either way. That is an absolute coin flip. If it's Loki, I could see Loki cheating and kind of winning something. I could also see Loki just spinning a tail and doing it this way. I don't know if we see Utgard Loki and actual Loki in the same room at the same time at any given point. Or his use of magic that he used for defeating this Aesir, whoever this Aesir was that he was wrestling, may have been Loki's magic helping give him a leg up. That's also very possible. Yeah, because that is totally something that Loki would do. That is something Loki would do. I could also see Loki wrestling Loki and saying, hey, look, I won. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm an Aesir. I won. Look, I beat an Aesir. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Jotunheim is also the location in D&D cosmology of the Well of Mimir. We have mentioned Mimir a couple of times. In D&D, for some reason, they decided to make Mimir a giant instead of an Aesir. I'm not entirely sure why, but they did. So Mimir the Wise is a mountain giant, and he answers only to giants and the Norse gods. Anyone else that shows up, he smashes. And if you are able to drink from the well, you gain a permanent 1d4 bonus to your wisdom. Now, Mimir is the one that requested Odin's Eye, correct? Possibly? I can't remember. It's because there was the pool that Odin drank from to gain wisdom, and the cost was cost was to his sacrifice eye, yes. his eye. Yeah, it's possible. It, actually, it's probable. Yeah, because Mimir is, if I recall correctly, sort of the god of wisdom, and that was him bestowing that boon onto Odin, and that was the price that he exacted for it. And like the wellspring for the well of Erd, the well of Mimir also springs up where one of these roots of Yggdrasil goes into the earth here in Jotunheim. Again, if you want to get anywhere, just climb the tree. <laughs> yeah, the tree is the highway system for Isgard. And everywhere. Well, not everywhere. 
Well, pretty much everywhere. I mean, everywhere you want to go. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Everywhere you want to go and Hades. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the next realm within Isgard is Alfheim, literally the home of the elves. According to D&D cosmology, this is the home for elves that are more neutral leaning and don't want to have dealings with the Seldarine. So the big chunk of elven gods. This is the realm that Frey governs. He is one of the Vanir gods that are under ransom to the Aesir. Whenever he has to leave Alfheim, his sister Freya comes in and sits in for him. She is usually away at uh, Susurumnir, which is the Hall of the Valkyries, in Folkvanger, which is in Vanaheim, which we're about to get to. Because if she hangs around, someone's going to try to marry her yet again. That is a constant thing in Norse myth as everyone tries to marry her or marry her off. It ain't easy being pretty. <laughs> it ain't, yeah, well, she also sleeps around a lot. Well, yeah, there's that too. So she has this necklace. It's this big fancy necklace with this great big ruby in it that is always glowing and it dims in the presence of a lie. And put me on the clock. According to lore... She found this in the workshop of a group of dwarves down in the third layer of Isgard. She's like, I want that. Their price was, you got to sleep with all four of us. And so she does, and she gets her necklace. And then Odin finds out about it, and he ain't happy about that. So he has Loki go and steal it from her and bring it to him. Well, she finds out that Odin has her necklace. She goes to Odin and says, I want my necklace back. And Odin says... Here's what you have to do if you want to get your necklace back. You see, these two kings down here, you have to make them go to war with each other. And you have to raise their soldiers from the dead and heal all of their wounds every day at dawn. So that we have an eternal conflict down there. She says, okay. She does that. She gets her necklace back. And that's the root of where the whole reviving every day at dawn if you die in Isgard comes from. End. Well done. And done in under two minutes. So also, double well done. Ha ha. (laughs) Excellent. So dwarves and gnomes are not welcome in Alfheim. Uh, And the elves of Alfheim will do everything in their power to make dwarves and gnomes feel uncomfortable and unwelcome if they show up. It's just that they're racist pricks. That's the whole of it. You see that again in a lot of early elf dwarven lore, even early on in Tolkien before you have the whole Legolas Gimli thing is there's a lot of animosity between the two. The big reason for it is because the dwarves make the weapons that the Aesir carry. That's the big deal. And it's also because the dwarves that are making these weapons aren't just giving them to the Aesir. They're also giving them to the giants and they're giving them to whoever can pay for them. They are the Starks of... (laughs) This is the Stark Industries of D&D. And they're all magic items because they're magic dwarves. We'll get more into that when we get that far. So Alfheim is this wild and beautiful wilderness area. It is rumored to have once been part of Arvandor and Arborea, but it slid into Isgard when the elves who lived there started to distance themselves from the Seldarine. It's like tectonic shifting in Pangaea, but more metaphysical. (laughs) Yeah, it is untouched by civilization, so there's not any towns here. In the summertime, the elves live outdoors, And according to lore, they welcome visitors and they heap gifts upon them as rewards for favors. Unless you're a dwarf. Yeah, unless you're a dwarf or gnome. Because nobody likes gnomes. Nobody. It's because they're short and stumpy. It's because (laughs) kobolds are my favorite. That's why nobody (laughs) likes gnomes. That too. So the common gifts that you would receive would be elven chainmail, cloaks, and boots. 
So this is where you would be able, if you wanted to give somebody a reward for a quest that they undertook here, something like a suit of mithril chainmail or a cloak or a pair of boots of elven kind, those would be the magic items that you would be looking at giving people as rewards. Yeah, you definitely get some plus one, plus two items here. Or even someone that had good relations with the elves, so they had something to kind of pass on secondhand, as it were. And in the wintertime, the elves move into these magically sealed crystal caves. The quote from the book is, visiting in winter is like visiting a house while the owners are away. So you can take all their stuff? Well, I mean, they don't have a whole lot of stuff. And they pick up and they move into their caves and... In the spring, they come back out and they have a big party whenever they come back out and plant the fields and la-di-da. This is your stereotypical, like if you've lived in the 70s or 80s, you know, the elves in the woods, kind of what they based a lot of Avatar off of. It's this kind of feel. Again, it's just that wild, you know, pre-nymph type thing. It's definitely here. Now, last week I mentioned that I would run these differently. I would run these as sort of the Simbarum type elves, the angry territorial wild savage elves, because we already have a whole plane full of happy hippie elves. Absolutely. That's Arborea. Let's leave them in Arborea. Let's give these guys something a little bit different. Again, these would be more like the Thalmor. These would be more like the Bosmer and Elder Scrolls. Okay, yeah. Where they have the green pact, where, you know, they're basically cannibals. <laughs> yeah. It's the you kill it, you eat it mentality. I like it. So that includes killing other Bosmer. Yeah, waste not, want not, you know. But the aspect of the whole, the gift giving and the welcoming visitors and all of that, I would actually take all of that and lump it in with the Svart Elves that we're going to get to in the third layer. Because that actually fits kind of with their whole vibe. Yeah, I could see that. Because they're supposed to be craftsmen. And so having a more baseline common craft that they are willing to give out as rewards for services. Yeah, I mean, and really as awesome as it would be with the Svartalfs, it's still probably like, eh, I made this because I was learning some stuff. So here, you know, they're just tossing it out. (laughs) Whereas the actual elves would have more of the Asgardian petitioner, violent brutality kind of vibe going. Right. And again, they've already proved they're kind of assholes. So let's just make them assholes to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. General douchebaggery. And so the last notable aspect of Alfheim is there is this strange hermit that lives in a hut that is built into the top of an enormous beech tree here. The hut itself is always surrounded by a cloud of bees in the summer and a flock of birds in the winter. And the hermit living here is Skogel, who is an exiled Valkyrie. She was exiled because she refused to collect more souls for Odin, and Odin was unwilling to kill her for her impudence. She has since repented and is on good terms with Odin, but she can't return until she finds her weapon, which was lost when she fell, when she was exiled, is the serpent-slaying axe Arngrim, which is going to be real important at Ragnarok, let me tell you. Because we have two big snakes that really need some killing. You read this, and the mental image I get is like a bartender cutting Odin off. No, you've had enough souls. I'll tell you when I have had enough, and then it kind of kicks her out. <laughs> that's my head cannon. You, you can't shake that, it from that'll me. work that'll work <laughs> so her big thing is she's looking for a giantess named borga who was the last known carrier of arngrim so it's this giant that's picked up her axe and she's trying to find this giant so she can get her axe back and the axe is rumored to be 
the only blade that can slay some of the progeny of Loki. So there are some of Loki's children that can only be killed by this axe. Again, giant creepy snake dude. Yeah. Probably Fenris. Possibly Maybe Fenris. Hell? I don't know. Maybe. But Neithog and uh, Jormungandr are the two serpents. So if nothing else this episode, we get to use some really freaking fun names. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Anyway, moving on to something a little less Norse for a minute. The next realm is the Gates of the Moon. The Gates of the Moon is the shared realm of Selun and Soma, goddess and god of the moon. Once I got down into the nitty gritty, we found out that Soma is the masculine aspect of the moon. So Soma is a guy. We didn't know last week. We know now. Hooray. There we go. Yay. Learning has happened. So Selun resides in a silver hall called Argentil, which is on a rocky island in the midst of an ocean of light. So there's this giant ocean in this realm and there's this Oracle at Delphi kind of temple built on a rock in the middle of it. Yeah, I was going to say this has a very Greek feel to it. Yeah. And apparently both Loki and Thor have tried to woo her and she has rebuffed both of them. For whatever reason, I'm not entirely certain she has her reasons, probably because Loki is Loki and Thor is a dick. Yeah. Loki's Loki, Thor's Thor. So Saloon's Hall is guarded by gigantic sea serpents and kraken. So you're going to have some fun if you try and sail across to her temple, um, especially if you are of an evil inclination, because, well, that's going to end very poorly. Misa going to die? Yusa going to die. So the River Oceanus touches on the ocean here at the Gates of the Moon, but the connection is tenuous at best. If you manage to get in good with one of the Lelendi, they will be able to direct you to a nexus where the river meets the ocean, and you will be able to follow that out of Oceanus and into Thalassia in Elysium. Otherwise, it's nearly impossible to find where that nexus is. That makes total sense. I'm okay with that. So what it does is it creates the circuit. You're going from Elysium across the Beastlands through Arborea into Isgard, and then from the Gates of the Moon, you find that little passage that zips you back to Elysium. It closes the circuit. And that's how you get electrical magic. (laughs) Ta-da! Another aspect of Argentil is this is where the infinite staircase starts. It starts here and it expands out to infinite locations from here. It only appears at the full moon. So you have to be here at the full moon in order to get in, or you have to find one of the other doorways that lead into it. One of the big things about Sigil in the Planescape setting is that it is chock full of these doors. So Sigil is an easier way to get onto the staircase, but this is a guaranteed way to get onto the staircase. So this reminds me, I think it was the end of the second or beginning of the third act in Diablo 2. They kind of had a section that was like this, and that's probably where they got the idea from. And it was a very MC Escher-ish. And I've not played the renewed version or the updated version, but I'm sure it's in there if they've brought it over as completely as they say they have. But there is this thing where you're going through, and it's a bunch of staircases going down. And all the staircases have art. You can't get through the archways, but there are obviously archways and doorways and stuff like that. The art for the level in the area was really kind of cool, but it's probably reflecting this here. And this does have that MC Escher vibe to it because the staircases turn at odd angles and you'll have some that are upside down over top of you and some that are going sideways. But the gravity always changes as you walk along it. So that down is always under you as you're walking on the stairs. Normal to the staircase. So one of the aspects of the Gates of the Moon is that lycanthropes that come here 
are able to control the transformations. So they cannot be compelled to change into their bestial form against their will. Also, light-based spells, so things like prismatic spray, sunbeam, moonbeam, none of them deal damage in this realm. The light of the moon is too diffuse throughout the entire realm for these spells to actually deal damage. And even creatures like vampires and other creatures with sunlight sensitivity can walk around in the open completely unharmed because it isn't sunlight. Next realm is the one that we are still trying to figure out why in the world it's here. Meritet, the feline realm of Bast. One of these things is not like the others. One, one of these, these things, things just, just doesn't, doesn't belong. <laughs> so Bast is a cat. Here, kitty, kitty. She does cat things. Whenever she decides to wander off and go on a hunt, she leaves the realm in the dubiously qualified hands of this sentient talking panther named Skullberry. That's B-U-R-Y, not B-E-R-R-Y. And he is best known for stashing his kills in the palace wardrobes, closets, and gardens. And he gets very upset if someone comes along and moves one of his little stinky trophies. So this was a game writer who just like really had a cat they loved or hated or both or like moved in with someone who had a cat they loved and like, I'm just going to write this in here. And it was probably a black cat because this is a panther. Yeah. I am going to say, though, when I think of Norse mythos and that great northern territory with the fjords and the midnight sun and the hot springs and the northern lights, the very next thing that comes to mind is a desert in a savanna. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right there with it. So one of the big things about Meritet is that whenever Bast is sleeping, which she does a lot because she's a cat, 16 hours a day, her dreams permeate everybody else who happens to be sleeping at the time in the realm. And because of this, visitors to the realm who are spellcasters cannot get the sufficient rest to regain spell slots because they're waking up every half hour because of the vivid nature of Bast's dreams. That seems reasonable, but what would be a lot of fun to put in this realm if we're just going to throw some random crap in here, because why the hell not, is Covens of Night Hags. They would have trouble, because this is still a good-aligned realm. I don't know. Again, when I see Bast, I don't think good-aligned either. She is chaotic neutral, and she is, you know... She's kind of a bitch in her own right, so I mean, if Loki's neutral, yeah, then, okay. Yeah, she's in the plane adjacent to Limbo. Okay. So, yeah, it is... This just does not fit. I really don't like this addition in this realm. It doesn't. But there it is. The problem is the planes that exist that are more conducive to her alignment don't have a place for her. So they shoehorned her in here because it is the least out of place. I could see her in the Shadowfell almost. I don't know, because you don't really have gods in the Shadowfell. Well, you have the Raven Queen. She is an entity that is of questionable divinity. It's never really properly established whether or not she is actually a god, whether her ritual to attain godhood was actually successful or not, which is why she has warlocks as opposed to clerics in most canon D&D settings. I know that Matt Mercer has her as a proper god and she does have proper clerics and paladins, but in D&D lore, she doesn't really have a clergy. This is a perfect time to kind of rely on our listeners and maybe throw something up on the Twitter and get some interaction. Where would you stick Bast? Where does she belong? Because I don't think she belongs in Yisgard. She does not feel right here. 
where would you stick her? Um, honestly, I would put her in the Beastlands. Yeah, the Beastlands would make perfect sense. I would put her in Karasuthra. I would put her in the third layer of the Beastlands. That honestly would make perfect sense. I'm wondering if our listeners would agree or if they have something different. But yeah, I would. The only issue is that it is a bit too good and not chaotic enough. I mean, we could put her in that bottom layer of Arborea, the desert layer. Yeah, that would be a great fit for her. Because, yeah, I mean, that right there fits a whole hell of a lot better than Yisgard. Because you've got a bunch of desert magic down there anyway. So, yeah, and I mean, the whole layer could be your personal cat box. And maybe that's why it's all crumbly now. But talking about the dreams of Bast here in Meritet, there are people that you can hire, typically Tabaxi or Sphinxes, or this breed of intelligent house cats called Bast's children, that you can hire called Dream Hunters. And basically what they do is they sleep next to you and they intercept Bast's dreams so that you don't experience them. Okay, you hire one of these to take on a night hag coven and they could offer the party some form of protection. If it's a single night hag, yeah. I could see a one-on-one, but it would have to be one heck of a dream hunter to take on a full coven of night hags. Well, I mean, if you're going to make an NPC, you want to make a fairly awesome NPC. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, I can definitely see a Lamasu or Sphinx dream hunter that would do that. I could see a tabaxi guild next to where a coven was. Our town we had in our Halloween episode last year. Yeah. If there was like a tabaxi guild nearby there that tried to protect the people, I could see that. I could see that, yeah. And it would also explain why the noble that hired the people to go on to the quest for our module had a tricorporate lion as his family sigil. Absolutely. See, we were just thinking ahead. We were a year ahead oh, of yes. ourselves. Look at Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at Not Quinky Dink. This was all planned. This was totally planned. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're done with that. Coming back to Norse stuff for a minute. Vanaheim. She's the lady that turns the letters in Price is Right. Or not Price is Right, but... Uh, Will of Fortune. Fortune. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Vanaheim is the realm of the Vanir. They are less inclined to violence than the Aesir, and that's reflected in the nature of the realm. So most of the petitioners here gather near Folkvang, or Field of the Folk, which is the big grassy area at the center of the realm. It's where Freya's Hall, Susrumnir, stands. So Freya, one of her other titles is Queen of the Valkyries. And so she sometimes rides into battle with the Valkyries in her chariot pulled by a pair of lions. And her whole thing is that she gets off of the top half of the souls that are slain in battle. And she automatically gets all of the female souls that are slain in battle. Oh, wow. She just gets that off the top and everyone else gets to go to Valhalla. So she's going to be picking all of the souls for the people who are the reluctant soldiers that were drafted in and are just trying to survive to get back home. These are all the souls of the people who are not actually battle-born, if that makes sense. You know, the people who don't live for battle. These are all of the civilians that died trying to defend their homes. This is all of the incidental civilian deaths. The honorable but dead, but not the the crazy gung-ho go for broke. Okay, yeah, no, I can follow that. Yeah, so all of them go here. Okay. This is probably a calmer place to be anyway. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Vanaheim is a coastal realm. 
and the coastline is always nearby wherever you happen to be. You can always smell the sea salt. You can always hear the seagulls. And it's usually overcast, and this thick fog rolls in off the sea every day. I'm liking it so far. There are two major deities that are staying here all the time. The first one is Ullur, who is the god of archery. He keeps a location called Idalir, which is a grove of magical yew trees that he uses to make bows. And as such, most of the petitioners here are archers. And you mentioned last week the sort of distaste that archery has in a lot of these very militant cultures being seen as sort of a lesser profession. Yeah. But the other location here is called Noatun, which is the primary settlement. It translates to the shipyard and it is the hall of Njord, who is the patriarch of the Vanir. This is Frey and Freya's father. He is giant in size and his hall is scaled to that. So all of the furniture inside of it is made for somebody who's 20 feet tall. The hall itself is made on the scale of someone that is that size. I'm liking it so far. I'm okay with this. I feel like I sit in the furniture for once. And his big thing is he's usually just outside of it in the water with his net fishing. He's just casting his net out into the water. Okay. But anyone caught sailing or swimming in the waters that is not given express permission from the Vanir are caught and pressed into work building long ships for Njord's followers. So they get put to work in the shipyards, just like the beginning of Les Mis. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, depending on what job you get stuck with, that could really suck. So just like in Asgard, anyone slain in Vanaheim is reborn the next day. The difference is... Because it lacks that unbridled raw fury that you have in Asgard, fights in Vanaheim take the form of honorable duels. And the whole goal is to generate the biggest following. So the more duels you win, the bigger your group of companions happens to be, the more prestige you gain. And the biggest faux pas is to decline an honorable duel. So one of the things I had come across with an idea, and I wanted to bring this up last week when we talked about the constant battles, was it's called the perpetual duel or the never-ending duel. I call it the little brother duel, but basically like an NPC comes up to one of your party members and challenges them to a duel. And if they die, they just pop up the next day and they continually challenge this character until they finally win. And then after they win, they hire a bard to follow your character singing these songs about how this guy kicked your ass the whole time. Which, I mean, that would probably happen here trying to build up that reputation type thing. I could totally see that happening. And so because of the nature of the Vanir, because they're less concerned with this honorable martial combat, archery duels, magical contests, and horseback duels are also popular and they attract huge amounts of wagering and speculation. So you have these big gambling halls where we've got a Thunderdome. Yes, you do. Oh, awesome. I love it. So that takes care of Vanaheim. Actually, there's one last place. It's the only permanent shop in Vanaheim, and it's called Starry Night. It's this inn that's built in the canopy of a massive maple tree that also functions as a bard school, wine shop, and casino. Speaking of Thunderdome. And all visitors are expected to bring at least a twig to feed the flames in the hearth. So you have to at least bring something to go in the fire, or you are in very poor taste. Oh, I like it. We get to burn things. Let's see here. I think I got two more. Okay, so the first one is pretty quick. It's Skeinheim. This is the headquarters of the ring bearers. It looks very rough from the outside, but when you reach the inside, every surface is pale polished pine, and the windows are set with 
thin sheets of amber instead of glass for the panes. Okay, I can kind of see that. Not my style choice, but I could see it. And apparently, it was once the chapter hall of the Fated before they built Rowan's Hall. But the details on how these guys came to possess it and how they're still holding it is not really common knowledge. I really come back to our discussion last week about the ring bearers. And again, yeah, you give away a lot of stuff, but that leaves you in a great position to call in some favors when you need it. And I'm sure that may have been one of these things where something happened. They said, hey, we want this. Let's cash in some tokens. All right. So now there's a couple little places left that I'm going to blitz through real quick because we're an hour in and we're still not to the second layer yet. I told you that we're very top heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a town here called Steadfast. It sits halfway between Asgard and Vanaheim. And it's known for its inhabitants, which are Berserkers and Beriar. Beriar being the sheep centaur people. The Berserkers here go raiding until they get too old to keep raiding. And then they go out in a battle raging blaze of glory. Which again leads me to believe that the whole reviving every day if you die is specific to Asgard and Vanaheim because this is between it's not either and so you live and you die Uh, okay there is no formal leadership in Steadfast it's total anarchy the last person to attempt to assert himself as a leader was an individual called Magister Sagittarius And his petrified remains are still in the center of town with a plaque reading, Magister Sagittarius, Failed Tyrant. Six Semper Tyrannus. (laughs) Exactly. But that takes care of Steadfast. The two last little bits. First off is the Hall of the Valiant, which is the realm of Kord, was added in 3rd edition whenever they took out the Asgardian Pantheon. It's basically a cheap attempt to lump all of Norse tradition into one god, because it is a great hall that just sort of plopped here. It sits where Himmenborg would be. It sits on the plain of Ida, and it's got this massive never-ending banquet where guests come and go, but the revelry never ends. And at the center of all these banquet tables is this wrestling pit. And every so often... Cord will set aside his intelligent dragon slaying greatsword named Kelmar and take off his dragon hide armor to enter the ring and face all challengers. This has a very Beowulf feel to it. I could see Cord being a Beowulf. Beowulf, Conan the Barbarian kind of vibe. Yeah, but I mean, you've obviously got the dragon slaying. You've got the night where they have the huge revelry before Grindel comes, you know, and they're yeah. trying to bait him into the hall. So they're just all sitting there drinking and doing whatever without saying, hey, look, this is Norse. But yeah, I mean, Cord's myth. He's okay-ish. The other god that was added in 3rd edition was Olidamara or Oladamara. I prefer Olidamara. I think it sounds better. Who is the god of rogues and tricksters. His mansion has the appearance of multiple different mansions with multiple different architectural styles just sort of mashed together. It kind of reminds me of the madhouse in Pandemonium. I could see that. Have you seen the opening to Ready Player One? No. I read the book. I haven't watched the movie. Okay, I've not read the book, but in the movie, they're in their like little slum type things. And right. it's basically like a bunch of single wide and double wide trailers stacked on top of each other to make right, these yeah. weird like, yeah, it's probably something like that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. But another thing that reminds me of the Madhouse is that the inside of this place is just this warren of mazes and locked doors and blind hallways and these secret treasuries that all surround this grand hall at the center. It's the Winchester House. It is. 
totally awesome. I love the Winchester house. And that was the comparison I brought up for the Madhouse when we were talking about Pandemonium. So yeah, yeah, I think that what they did was they said, that looks cool. Let's move it here in third edition and give it to this God of Trickery. Probably, yeah. Um, because I don't remember seeing mention of the Madhouse in third edition Manual of the Plains because the faction that ran the Madhouse is a Planescape faction out of Sigil that wasn't included in third edition. Sometimes you do just a little bit of copy pasta. <laughs> Yay, copy pasta. And so this grand hall at the center of everything is where this raucous party of wine song and debauchery is. The only rule is that music and dancing are mandatory. So if you go, you have to either be playing music or dancing, preferably both. And so Elidamara lounges on a divan here in this room unless he's walking around with his magical mask disguised as one of the other guests so he will occasionally disguise himself as one of the other guests and just walk around and pretend to be other people because he's a trickster god and he can do that why not i like it and thus ends just the first layer so now you know how much more to expect we've got two more to go (laughs) luckily that was about 90 percent of the episode (laughs) (laughs) all right so That brings us to the second layer, finally. The second layer is called Muspelheim, and its best-known realm is also called Muspelheim because we ran out of creativity for Isgard. You said you had a gripe about Muspelheim. Yeah, and again, I brought this up at the beginning. Muspelheim and Niflheim are the two primal kind of chaotic forces. This is where you're going to have largely your fire giants and things like that. This is the Norse version of your chaotic realms or your chaotic outsiders. So really, this should be on the edges of the realm rather than in the center of it. These are the chaotic forces of creation here and in Niflheim in Norse mythology. Okay, I see the rest of my time. (laughs) So Muspelheim literally means land of fire. This is the layer where the earthbergs burn on top instead of on the bottom like they do up on the first layer of Isgard. And so the parts of the surface that aren't on fire are sharp volcanic rock, which easily slice through boots and sandals and then eventually your feet. Think of a bunch of broken obsidian. Yes, but at least the heat will cauterize the wounds instantly so you won't bleed out. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's going to suck. It's going to suck lots, but you won't bleed out. So Surtur, the giant god of fire, frequently visits Muspelheim, and the realm is generally on good terms with the plane of elemental fire. There are lots of conduits between Muspelheim and the Smoking Hammer Shrine to Surtur within the City of Brass. There's also a conduit between Muspelheim and Sukte Albarana, which is the Burnt Fortress, this fortress on the leading edge of the Afridi Empire, where a bunch of fire giants serve as mercenaries. So this is a way that you can get into the outer planes from the inner planes if you can get to one of these conduits within, say, the City of Brass. The efforts are still kind of dicks. Yes. Well, the fire giants are kind of dicks too, so... Fair enough. But again, the fire giants are forces of elemental chaos, so they get a little bit of a pass. The efforts are just lawful dicks. Yeah, (laughs) they are. They are dicks by design. (laughs) They are drawn dicks versus natural dicks, okay? (laughs) They are designer dicks. Yes. That's something completely different. I think designer dicks would probably be Feywild. Maybe. Or Mechanus. I could totally see Mechanus making some designer dicks. (laughs) We are getting totally (laughs) off the rails here. It's late. Yeah, it is. So visitors to this layer of 
East Guard suffer the same effects as if they were on the plane of elemental fire. That's the kind of fire that we're talking about here. Magical weapons that deal cold damage or bleeding damage, such as wounding weapons or frost brands, simply don't function here. And any spell that creates water functions as if the fireball and shout spell, shout not existing in 5th edition, I would say probably a combination of fireball and thunder wave. Yeah, those two fit. Were cast simultaneously centered on the create water spell that you're trying to do, releasing a concussive blast of superheated steam in a 10-foot radius per spell level. So this is an instant spell flashbang. Yes. I like it. And the sound will often bring packs of hellhounds or patrols of fire giants to investigate. Because that's a big noise. (laughs) It is big bada boom. One of the big landmarks here. It's the only real liquid on Muspelheim. And it is the quote unquote waters of the Lake of Lead. And it's where fire giants drown their criminals. That sucks. That said, molten lead is actually really pretty if it's good high quality lead and you don't have a bunch of scum on top yeah it has that nice silvery shimmer to it yeah that said i don't want to take a bath on it (laughs) no (laughs) no so there's only one real major town here in muspelheim and it's called Nyarlok, and it is known for its obsidian jewelry and a unique form of volcanic aquamarine Ooh. Um, as well as this special type of stone plow that the giants in Jotunheim really, really like. It's probably, if I had to guess, an obsidian-bladed plow, which allows them to, you know, actually till the probably frozen ground of Jotunheim. I would probably say not obsidian, because obsidian, while extremely sharp, is also extremely fragile. But it's magical. Okay, well, fair enough then, yeah, okay. (laughs) I was going to say, otherwise it's probably another form of harder ignis rock, but yes. Now, another thing I do want to bring up, Muspelheim, and Niflheim and Nidvalar are the elemental forces of chaos. So as much as we talked about, because these are the forces that are supposed to come and take over and eventually technically win at Ragnarok, because Ragnarok's the end of everything in Norse myth, atrophy, and chaos eventually win. That said, think about it as wonky and as crazy as Loki, Thor, and Odin, and all of that random battle and drunken brawling and crap is happening in Asgard. They think... They are order to this chaos. (laughs) Yes, that's right. So one last detail before we move on out of Muspelheim. There is an NPC here. Kind of like this dude. His name is Crazy Ingmar. He's a frost giant who is convinced he is a fire giant. And he believes that Muspelheim is an open book of arcane secrets. And he watches the flames to try and figure out what those secrets are. Yeah, this dude's my number two right under Father Bear. Like, Father Bear is a clear number one. This guy's number two. (laughs) He's kind of great. He sits around. He's wearing a ring of fire resistance that helps keep him comfortable. And he wears this polar bear fur cloak. And he's always accompanied by this old wolf called Red Nose. He's described as a wolf that has lost his howl. He's too old to run with the packs anymore. And his whole deal now is he keeps Ingmar safe by staying on the lookout for threats and moving them away whenever something comes along that would try to eat him because he's kind of crazy. I need a book about Ingmar. (laughs) And if he has a Russian accent, so much the better. Yes. (laughs) And that's all of Muspelheim. See how nice and easy that was? That that was like, what, eight minutes, ten minutes, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that was nothing. (laughs) 
nothing compared to the hour and a half that we took. Well, if someone didn't chase rabbit trails. We <laughs> yeah. For those of you playing at home, I don't know how much I cut whenever I edited this, but we were at an hour and fifty minutes when we finished Easgard, and we're at two o four now. So <laughs> we're doing pretty good. So we've come in now to the last layer of Easgard, Nita Velir. So Nita Velir is both the name of the layer and the name of the dominant realm within this layer. Again, they got kind of lazy with their naming practices. Nita Velir is the realm that is home to the Norse dwarves. The only known deity to come here periodically is the minor dwarven god Muamon Duathel. That sounds like someone you'd find in the Dune movie. <laughs> it kind of does. Though there are some who claim that Hod the Blind, who is Baldur's brother and the Norse god of Smithcraft, has been exiled here. And it makes sense, and I'll get to why it makes sense in a minute. But he was apparently exiled from Asgard because the Norns, who are the fates of Norse mythology, foresaw that he was fated to kill Baldur with a spear made of mistletoe. Mistletoe being the only thing that can harm Baldur. And so, in actual Norse lore, he kills Baldur with a mistletoe dart that he throws because Loki told him to as a joke and guided his hand. See, this is why we can't have lawn darts. Loki is the reason we can't have lawn darts. (laughs) So the nature of this particular realm is that visible light doesn't work. You cannot cast magical light. It just doesn't work. But dark vision still does, or infravision, as it was called in second edition. And that makes sense if this is the realm of Hod the Blind, because he's blind, he doesn't need light. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I can totally get along with that. I was just going to say that like 500 to 900 area of the EM spectrum just poofed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this includes things like the fires from the actual forges that the dwarves are using to create all of their things. That fire does not actually generate any light. That sucks. Because you kind of want to see the glow of the metal and know when to take it out or where not to stick your fingers. Well, see, in second edition, when this was infravision, you would still be able to do that because heat gradients would still show up differently. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. And with infravision, you kind of look like the, the old Predator movies. All right. So the realm is comprised of numerous Norse dwarvish and gnomish kingdoms. Freaking gnomes. Freaking gnomes. The halls are filled with the work chants of dwarves and the lilting songs of gnomes as they go about their merry work, mining mithril and making stuff out of it. And doing dirty, dirty gnome things. And doing dirty, dirty gnome things. We're not biased. No. <laughs> so the dwarves of Nidavellir are divided up into two sub-races. The first are the Durin. The Durin create magical weapons and they trade them with the Aesir, they trade them with the Frost Giants... Anybody who can pay the price, they will make these weapons for them. And they're all magical because they're magical dwarves, which was a big deal in 2nd edition because in 2nd edition, dwarves didn't really have magic. The other group are the Modsognor, Gesundheit, (laughs) who create only non-violent magic items, and they only make them for the Aesir. So they do have their standards. (laughs) And any item that a Durin smith makes costs at minimum, 10,000 gold. Sweet Jeebus. Yeah, you want him to make you a dagger? Baseline 10,000 gold. Yeah, but that's going to be a freaking awesome dagger. 
Oh, that is going to be the simplest awesome dagger that you can possibly get. Yes. But remember, you do get what you paid for most yes. times. Oh, no. No, no, no. With the Durin, you absolutely get what you pay for. So the Durin are the folk who made Mjolnir, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that little thing? Yeah. Oh, that little thing? Yeah. So Mjolnir, the axe that the one Valkyrie is looking for, they made that. They made Odin's spear. All of these big, prominent weapons. So what you're telling me is they're talentless hacks? Absolutely. Okay. Never, never buy anything from a dwarf. And because these dwarves are inherently magical, anything that they make is magical. Any item that they make. And they only tend to carry items on their person that are relevant to their duties at hand. So if they are a miner, they're only going to have a magical mining pick. They're going to have a magical, maybe, prospector's hammer a magical coil of rope, maybe, or uh, a mithril chain, a fine mithril chain that they can use in lieu of a rope. These sort of things, they're not going to just carry random magic items on their person. If they're not being used specifically for a purpose, they are either made to sell to somebody for a whole lot of money, or they're made for the guys that are going raiding the Svartelves. Okay. Now, again, touching back on some good Norse lore, just because this is fun. Some of the stuff they made was because Loki, as a trick, decided to shave Thor's wife's head bald <laughs> and had to make up for it. And Molnir, while as impressive as Molnir is, Molnir kind of got screwed up. So Molnir was not as wonderful or as good as they had intended to produce. It actually came up that the handle was a little short, and that's why it's a one-handed hammer instead of like a battle mace. Yeah, that's why Mjolnir has that short, stubby handle on it. Now let's get into the other half of this layer, which is Svartalfheim. It is unclear which deity is the power behind the realm of Svartalfheim. Now, I will fully admit my knowledge of Svartals and Svartalsheims is solely limited to... The Dresden Files? One Mr. Jim Butcher. That is the bulk of what I know of the Svartals as well, which is part of the reason why I want to put the item stuff happening up in Alfheim down here whenever I make my nice feral savage elves because I want my elves to be feral and savage. I'm tired of my hippie elves. I want some elves that are actually going to kill them. Yeah, no, I, I totally Just that. like that. Like that. Just yeah, like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love Willow. So it is rumored that the god who is the power behind Svartalfheim is Alistris the Dark Mate, who is the daughter of Lolth and Corallon Lorethian, and to my knowledge is the only god of the drow pantheon, the dark Seldarine, who is not evil. Ooh, okay. She's the god that is trying to reconcile the two halves of the family. And she left with Lolth because she knew there's no way that if she'd stayed with the Seldarine instead of going with the dark Seldarine, that she would be able to have any contact with the dark Seldarine. Okay. But some others claim that the realm is uh, for Erevan Ilisir who is another one of the elven gods, the Seldarine goddess of trickery, to be used as a retreat from the stifling goodness of Arvandor and Arborea. I could totally get along with that one, too. <laughs> some even claim that it is ruled by Loki in disguise. Eh. Loki's turned into a woman before. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's totally done that before. I mean, apparently he likes horses, so... <laughs> <laughs> we don't judge. Consenting deities behind closed doors. <laughs> I'm going to judge a little bit because... Horses are not sentient and therefore cannot give consent. Well, except it was the male, so maybe? No, 
gender doesn't play into this. If you are not sentient, you cannot give consent. Okay, I that cannot is, disagree with that. That is that the is, hill is I am planting my flag on, James. I can totally stand behind on that one. Okay, okay. I'm good with that one. <laughs> anyway, bestiality aside. <laughs> so the dwarves see the Svartals as being simply drow and believe that this dark elf land is connected to Loth's lair in the abyss. Which it very well may be, because if it is Illustris the Dark Maiden, who is the power here, she's going to have a conduit where she can go back to the rest of the Dark Seldarine and communicate with them. That doesn't mean that anyone other than her is allowed to use it, but that conduit probably does exist if she is the power behind the Svart Elves. They see these elves as being chaotic, unpredictable, and utterly ruthless. They, they see them as this chaotic, evil enemy. This demonically infused abyssal horror, mainly because it's their enemy and you vilify your enemy to make it easier for you to kill them. Yeah, that's just stage one propaganda. And rumors state that there are parts of Svartalfheim that shift across the boundary into Pandemonium or even into the Abyss itself. Though, in truth, they just want to be left alone and they aren't overly aggressive about it unless you're a dwarf or a gnome. Because on the surface, they're probably not going to take the time to figure out if you are an outsider dwarf or gnome, or if you're a Nidaveller dwarf or gnome, they're probably not going to take the time to make that distinction. They're going to assume that you're from the other guys first. And if you survive long enough to convince them otherwise, they'll probably stop attacking you. Maybe. Maybe. They are less inclined towards a glorious death in battle and more towards the joys and praises of living in the moment. Which kind of gets me to that maybe because once you kind of get that battle rage bloodlust thing going and daggers start swinging it's probably just going to keep swinging until it's done just because they seem like they'd very much get caught up in the moment so svartalfheim is kind of uniformly warm it's heated by these hot springs and underground geysers and you have these rivers of nice warm water that have these little wisps of steam that come off of them all over the place The stone is also magically resonant. It glows with this faint silvery glow, so you actually have constant illumination everywhere you go, as opposed to Nidaveller, which is black. And the magical properties of this stone are such that any noise that you hear resonates magically, making any sound pleasant to the ear. It's all (laughs) auto-tuned. Yeah. So a drop of water drops from the ceiling into the river, And it sounds like the tinkling of a bell. Okay. Everyone who comes in and starts singing has the most beautiful singing voice. And one of the things that they emphasize is that this beautiful singing voice ends as soon as you leave Svartalfheim. But the people singing don't often realize that. Oh my. Until someone stops them. (laughs) (laughs) And so the stone also, in second edition, enhanced all bardic abilities. I would call this enchantment spells in 5th edition. So that all bardic abilities functioned at three levels higher, including spells. Mm, I would limit these specifically to bard spells and or performance checks personally, I think would be kind of awesome. I could also see someone trying to sell maybe fragments of these stones in the material realm or elsewhere, whether or not the DM wants to allow them to have some carryover however small it is, but kind of, they could either be frauds or, or maybe a small little, you know, with advantage type thing would be kind of yeah. fun to do. No advantage on persuasion checks, maybe? 
Yeah, or like I said, advantage on performance checks. Or targets of like a charm person spell make their save at disadvantage. Yes. Because that is the sort of thing. It makes your voice to dulcet tones and it makes your words more amiable. It makes you more convincing, more pleasant, you know, friendlier, as it were. Roll advantage on seduction. (laughs) And there are groves of ironwood trees that grow in the caves down here that do not require sunlight. They instead grow off of the ambient heat of the plane. Okay. And most of the areas in Svartalfheim are these gaudy, full of glitter caverns. The term that he uses is gaudy, full of glitter, but as thin as a harlot's curtain. The finest caverns, they're carved from clear quartz or studded with mica or pyrite. So they just like shiny things that glitter, display but not substance. I'm really okay with this place. (laughs) And they may not be actually trying to cheat you, but any gem that you attempt to buy is as likely to be paste in glass as it is to be a ruby. Okay, I'm out. If it's not an inherently magical thing that they are specifically saying that, yes, this is a ruby. If you make that assumption, basically all of the jewelry that they make is costume jewelry, but it looks real. Again, if I was running like... A shady merchant, this would be a great place to, like, get supplies from. Oh, yes. So there are two major cities within Svartalfheim. The first one is called Dokar. Dokar is the cultural center of Svartalven society, described as a bustling town of weights and measures, bright ribbons, and scented cloth. The fabrics that they weave here are highly sought after because they are able to hold enchantments well, and so they're frequently used for magical cloaks, hats, and other garments. So all of your wizards are going to want to get fabric from here to make their fancy wizard robes. Yeah. And I can see earlier something we kind of skipped over, but with that grove of ironwood trees, you're probably going to get a lot of good, like, druidic weapons down here, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, ironwood bucklers were a thing in 3rd edition because they gave you the metal shield bonuses with a wooden shield. So druids wanted to get an ironwood buckler for that reason. You, James, would probably not like Dokar very much because it has very narrow streets and it's packed with thousands of people. Yeah, not my place. Not yeah. my place. They got some pretty stuff. That said, you know what? This kind of has the feel of maybe New York City going down the Diamond District. I can see that. I've been there once or twice. Didn't actually get to go to the actual Diamond District, unfortunately. But the Cloth District and stuff like that, where you have your basic stuff, you actually have some really nice stuff, which is kind of cool to shop. But again, those narrow streets, kind of busy. I'd visit, wouldn't want to stay. Probably need my anxiety meds. We'll be okay. (laughs) But the other big thing that they are well known for are their carved gemstones. Yes, I would go specifically for that. Which are magically enhanced to have a number of magical effects, including protecting the bearer from poison or blades. So all of your different periapts that you see in the magic item list in the DMG, this is where you could get all of those. This is also where you could get your figurines of wondrous power. So all of your, like, was it the Onyx dog and all of those. The one weird thing about Dokar is that the merchants here straight up don't haggle. You walk in, you say you want to buy something, they give you a once over, and they name a price. And that is their price, and that's what they're going to stick to. Now, see, I like that. I can respect that. I think haggling is you're trying to screw your customer over. If you can budge, then obviously you were trying to take one over. I have a hard time haggling. I'm not good at it. So, yeah, I'm totally filling these Svartals right now. I think I found a kindred spirit. So the other town within Svartalfheim is called Igweird. This is the complete opposite. This is the city of the ancestors. It's a giant collection of mausoleums. 
where the Svartelven dead are laid to rest. They're all these family or clan mausoleums. And because it is an infinite realm, as the eons go on, they just continue to dig the mausoleum deeper and deeper and deeper to accommodate the next generation and the next generation and on and on and on. Oh my god, necromancy here would be so much fun. (laughs) Not as much as you think. So it is a big thing for the Svartels that if you are about to die, you make your last pilgrimage here so that you can die amongst your ancestors and so that your spirit can be here resting with your ancestors so your progeny can come to ask you for your wisdom. Or if you are slain in battle or just if you die outside of the city in general... It's very important for them that your body be brought here and laid to rest with your ancestors so that your spirit can be here for that purpose. The city itself is defended by a host of banshees and haunts and other incorporeal spirits of the Svartelven dead whose bodies were never recovered and never interred. Okay. So, uh, I'm so still seeing we need a necromancer here. And the big thing is... These spirits bar anyone who is not an elf from entering the city. So if you are not an elf, you're not getting in because you're going to end up having a couple thousand angry spirits cut you to pieces. And the city is maintained by the witch mistress Ingrid Leanne's daughter, keeper of the mysteries and the weird. And she is a 17th level wizard. That's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, I'm totally feeling a kindred spirit here with some of these fart elves. Of the areas I'd probably be most comfortable here in this plane. Yeah, I can definitely see that. A little bit the Gates of the Moon, but not really. I do kind of like the Gates of the Moon, too. I mean, that would be a close second. But for me, probably Svartalfheim would be where I would wind up. Yeah. All right. And that brings us to the end. Finally. It's been a journey. It has been a journey. And thank you, everyone, who ended up reaching the end of this journey with us. If you did reach the end of this journey with us, I do want to throw out, because again, there has been so much Norse lore thrown in here. Neil Gaiman has put out an amazing book with a collection of Norse lore. If you have a chance to read it, the library, buy it, Audible, however, it's a great collection. He does a really good job putting it together. It would be a lot of fun if you took those stories, you could kind of feed them in through here with your realm as you saw fit. There's so much stuff that we didn't even get to touch on that, I mean, just like I said, some great stories, great hooks for campaigns or whatever you want to do. I'd really suggest getting that book and reading it. Yeah, and the third edition Man of the Plains did also mention that, you know, there's enough weird stuff here that if you wanted to just make this its own planet, you could go ahead and do that. Yeah, easily. Yeah, you don't have to adhere to the Great Wheel cosmology. You can just make this a complete other world in and of itself, and the geography of the world is so bizarre that it would work like that. So anyway, thank you everyone for bearing with us and reaching the end. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. James and I are planning on putting together a Q&A that we're going to be doing. Let me do the math here because we're recording ahead of time. So we're going to be releasing this on releasing the Q&A on December 1st. We're going to be recording on November 28th. So the post that we have pinned to our Twitter account will be running through November 27th. So if you have any questions that you want to ask us, whether they're about D&D lore, about our home games, about our homebrews, 
any of that. If you have homebrew that you want us to chime in on or to give you advice on, post those questions there. Send us an email. Send us a DM if you're not comfortable posting it publicly on our Twitter account. And we're going to collect up as many of those questions as we can fit into a reasonable time period. And we're just going to have a Q&A. We're going to try and do it through our Twitch account because we have a Twitch account that we haven't used yet. So that may be our first attempt at using our Twitch account to actually have some actual video of us, which we're going to try. We give you a fair warning. I have a face for radio. Just putting that out there. (laughs) (laughs) If you have questions for us, send us an email, send us a DM. Hey. Or Willow will eat your face. (laughs) Yes, you will. I'm still doing the Shakespeare and Insult Page of Gay Calendar inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They're going onto our Twitter account and getting cross-posted to our Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. That's where all of our write-ups go. Uh, some of them are free. Some of them are patron exclusive. If you would like to help support the show, please consider coming over and becoming a patron. We are also on Discord. The link for our Discord is in the show notes. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you once more for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you, and you may even see us, next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.